The following is the Room 237 press conference recorded on Thursday, September 27, 2012 at the Walter Reed Theater, part of Lincoln Center in the wonderful New York City. Uh, the press conference included the director of the film, Rodney Asher, and his producer, Tim Kirk. Uh, so once again, this is the press conference for the film slash documentary, Room 237. Enjoy. Yes, um, you, uh, you make very dashing figures, not as scary as anything that we've just seen on the screen. Um, I will start the press conference by asking you a few questions, then I will open it up to the audience. How did you find your five very assiduous experts? Well, I think we, we, we tracked most of them down online. You know, um, some of them, Jay Wagner, Julie Kearns, and um, John Paul Ryan, really active on the mind, constantly writing about The Shining amongst their other interests. And um, Tim, what about Bill and Jeff? Uh, I found Bill through, um, he, he's a reporter at ABC News, and he writes about, among other things, climate change. So there's a big firewall up uh, to, uh, to, get, to get a hold of him because there's a lot of people that like to share their opinions with him on that subject. But I sent him a blind email and it happened to have the word Kubrick in it and that seemed to be the key to putting back the firewall. The firewall melted as soon as Kubrick was mentioned. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. He was very eager to talk to us and, and a big part of the film. And was the decision to never show your experts their place from the very beginning of the project, or was that something you decided on doing later? Well, it was a style that I had worked in earlier, and there's something I really liked about it, the way um, these sort of disembodied voices, when you never cut back to the faces, you're always trying to find, you know, these other, you know, kind of visual, visual tools to describe what they're talking about, and sometimes it would be very literal, other times it was kind of a, a fun challenge to be, to work more subjectively. Um, and it's also, I mean, I find sometimes coming back to the talking headshot of somebody, you know, in a room like this is a little mundane, you know, it's the world that we all live in, and, and you know, I wanted this movie to be off in outer space in the old west or ancient room, not um, an office or a hotel room. I mean, it, at one point, you know, I considered like, we did all the interviews audio only. I mailed people actually these inexpensive digital audio recorders that I got on Amazon and, and talked to them on the phone as, as they recorded themselves and then mailed it back to me. And in the early stages, you know, I was considering, you know, shoot, coming to see them to shoot some stuff, you know, in the second half of the movie, but I just got so engaged with, you know, all the, all, all, all the ways that things changed and things played without their faces that I just wanted to continue down that road. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we'd love to take some questions from the audience. Oh, I just want to make sure we have a microphone so that Rodney and Tim can hear you. Do we have... Okay, there appears to be no microphone, so I'll just repeat your <laughs> question so that the gentleman can hear. Um, no microphone? Yes. Gentleman in the white shirt and glasses? Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed the film. But uh, I thought w what was interesting is that the, there's an original score for the f picture that sounds a lot like it's in debt 
to Italian horror films of the 70s and 80s. And particularly, there are a couple clips. There, there are numerous clips from both Demons and Demons 2, which are both from that area. So I wanted to ask uh, what, where you got the idea of using that a score that sounds like that and what the relationship you feel is between The Shining and those Italian horror films. Okay, I'll repeat the question because I'm sure you didn't hear. This gentleman wants to know about, and correct me if I'm not paraphrasing this correctly, the decision to use music that is very resonant with Italian horror films and if you see any connection between The Shining and that genre of Italian horror films. Well, if you certainly that's the kind of music that just personally had a huge amount of affection. It also comes from an era around the time of earlier, a few years after. Now let's together in a sort of rough audio version of this movie. That was the stuff I was soundtracks, stuff like, you know, Goblin or Tangerine Dream or, you know, Morricone, people who had been um, working at that time. Because I think that kind of music, you know, even if it's you know, a scene of something like, you know, a zombie, you know, a zombie, someone in a hand. There's a way that that kind of music sort of elevates the scene in the, and the, makes ramifications of what's happening. It seems so much more important to me. How something odd than a struggle is like a supernatural pop that makes There was a joke I had with um, our composer, Psych, Bill Hudson. They have an amazing sort of connection to the Marks You know, we were kind of going for something like Rob Zombie's Quainus Patsy. <laughs> Although there's sort of a, a horror, um, you know, kind of effect, you know, throughout a lot of imagery that we're using. That Philip Glass music, which, you know, similarities and, of course, strong differences between that and, you know, this sort of analog synthesizer. And horror stuff, they both have sort of similar kind of transcendent meditative qualities. Um, you know, and also, like if those movies were coming out around the same time as The Shining, they were cheaper and skeezier than The Shining, and this movie is certainly cheaper <laughs> and skeezier than The Shining. Um, just also, I just love that stuff. And, you know, I, I would try it out and it seemed to, you know, add. You know, um, something I really loved. I'm all over the place. Yeah. Certainly, those movies are touched the soundtrack, and you know, you'll notice there's footage here, you know, from some from, from uh, a classic Italian art film. Keep coming back to. Um, oh, great! We have microphones now. There's a gentleman here. Yeah. Of the various uh, opinions and uh, approaches to uh, analyzing the film, is any one of those opinions more convincing, or that you you were ready to jump onto and add to your own analytical approach to the film? I mean, certainly, I can incredibly easily watch the movie through any of these people's eyes, and they've all you know just dramatically changed the way I see the way I see things. I mean, I'm kind of incapable of singling. One out was the one that speaks the most to me. I know what I got really, what, what I got most excited about was when they would start to overlap in kind of unexpected ways. Um, I mean, there's a brief moment when Julie Kearns is talking about a minotaur in the labyrinth, 
and there's a dissolve in the film. You know, this is something that John Paul Ryan talks a lot about, the importance of the dissolves in the movie. And there's a scene when Wendy and Danny are walking through the maze, and it dissolves into or out from a shot of Jack walking through the um, Colorado ballroom, slamming his tennis ball. And, and he's walking the same direction as Danny and Wendy. And as the, in, in the dissolve, it's like he's in the maze chasing them. And there were like two or three other times when John Paul Ryan's idea of combining these scenes would reinforce other people's ideas, like the Hitler mustache, which you know was kind of mind-blowing, but I've seen the movie so many times and would never have noticed that thing. And it isn't like Hitler or World War II is especially important to anything that John Paul Ryan was describing in the course of our interview, but it's incredibly important to what Jeffrey Cox is saying. Um, um, so I get especially excited when we find a moment when two or three of them, you know, would kind of overlap. I know for me, um, Julie Kearns talk about mapping the hotel and the impossible geography really resonates. Um, I've always thought that because the film is, the, 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 I always thought that a reason, or, 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 I, or I've learned to think <laughs> that a reason that uh, people get so lost in the Overlook is because there is such a strong sense of place there. Um, and the film is so narratively sparse that you do have time to sort of wander those halls and look around and find details and so forth. And I think discovering that that, that, that it just doesn't work, that it's an impossible space, really adds to my understanding of the sort of bad dream quality of the, of the Shining. And could each of you talk about your own relationship to the film? Was it something that you saw at a very tender age? Has it, has it been a film that both of you has been seminal in your, in your film going over the years? Or they have perhaps been a series of your own? Well, I mean, certainly it's a movie that, I mean, I, I first saw it, or at least saw the first 10 or 15 minutes of it when I was a little kid, and I snuck into it during its initial release. And um, something about, you know, this kind of overwhelming quality of the music at the, at the top sort of chased me out. But soon, you know, I was a, a budding, you know, young horror aficionado, so very soon, after its release on VHS, I revisited again and again and again and again. Um, and something me and Tim talk about that's, that's really kind of interesting is as young kids, you know, it's, it's always very natural for us to identify with Danny and to, see the, and to see the movie through his eyes. But now as, you know, we're at another stage of our lives and we both have young children, you know, we absolutely are watching this movie, you know, through the eyes of Jack, seeing him as a very bad cautionary <laughs> story. Yeah, I, I also saw it at, um, at Matt Nade of the premiere at uh, Ramen's Chinese here in Hollywood, and I got an older friend to buy me the ticket and so forth. <laughs> um, but I watched, it was on um, late night on Cinemax or something, when I was my freshman year in college, and I would spend too many hours late at night <laughs> Just watching that film over and over uh, down in the basement of my dorm, uh, and it is funny. I I I often early I sort of root for Jack to go crazy because he's such a phony at the beginning of the film. But 
as you know, Rodney and I watched it again all the way through in the process of this film, and like he was saying, it had really become about fatherhood and about not being a terrible dad, and it was just a really different experience. Yeah, and that kind of stuff, I mean, John Paul Ryan describes a very similar experience, but you know, for me, this movie was made largely between hours of 9 p.m. and 3 a.m. And I was sitting at a keyboard, you know, typing away, not sure what I was writing was meaningless gibberish and repetitive nonsense or something that, you know, other you know, normal human beings might be sensitive. So it's very, very easy to see um, Jack as the worst possible scenario version of myself. Um, are there other questions? Uh, yes, in the back. Is yeah. that gone free? Yes, just wait for the microphone. Gentlemen, toward the back. Thank you. Can you talk about um, how you got the rights to all these film clips, yes. both the Kubrick and the non Kubrick? You want to take this one, Tim? Um, you know, we went through a process, uh, we licensed a bunch of stuff, we also worked with um, a law firm, Donaldson Caleb, um, we did a lot of clearance through them, it was a really exhaustive project process, basically there was a spreadsheet of, you know, probably 30 pages long, it listed every single shot, we addressed each of, each of them for clearance issues. Um, but we have, you know, we're in a good place to distribute, and um, so that process is complete. Uh, yes, woman here in the center. Hi, I wonder if you could address the room you're, sh you're sitting in and tangerine. Um, Looks like a pepper mill in the center of Christina's world over one of your heads. It just has some symbolic. Well, of, of course it does. But it's, but it's hardly my place to tell you what it all means. <laughs> and as we know, authors and Ken, it's never a given here. <laughs> but here's a closer <laughs> look at it. <laughs> sets up a really interesting feud between um, Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick, and I'm wondering if you guys ever made an attempt to go after Stephen King for the film and find out what, you know, his opinions have changed over time. Well, no, I mean, in the, in the course of making the film, you know, we probably spent eight-plus months, you know, sort of batting around ideas and trying to figure out what we wanted our focus to be. And it was pretty clear early on that we wanted to restrict this to... You know, what happens after a film leaves the filmmaker's hands and the kind of, you know, effects it has and the chain reactions it creates in the minds of the audiences. So, you know, Stephen King or anyone who worked on the movie were people who didn't really want to talk with, you know, as part of the digital process. You know, certainly now that it's wrapped up, you know, Stephen King is sort of kind of on the top of my list of someone, um, you know, whose, whose two cents I'd love to get. He actually talks 
you know, a fair amount about the movie on the DVD commentary track for the um, 90s era Shining miniseries that he created. And he talks about what was this, a real surprise to me, how personal a story it was, and how, auto, how autobiographical it was. Yeah, and uh, towards the top of my list would be to talk to Diane Johnson, who uh, collaborated with Kubrick on the screenplay. And it is curious that Stephen King's sequel to The Shining is going to be coming out <laughs> sometime next year, which is one of a thousand coincidences and synchronicities that we could have imagined, you know, when starting this thing. Have any of your five experts ever met in person? <laughs> you know? um, yeah, uh, Jeffrey Cox, who talks about the Holocaust, and Bill Blakemore, who speaks so eloquently about the Native Americans, uh, met for the first time at Sundance uh, before the screening. And I had dinner with him and, and with the, both the pair of them and their wives. And uh, very quickly, they would disappear down rabbit holes together. And the wives and I would stare at each other, uh, comment on the weather and so forth. <laughs> so they got deeper and deeper into uh, their Cupid mania. Um, but we have never, all five of them have never been in the same room together. And, uh, I've only met those two, so. I've met John Paul Ryan, who actually wound up moving not to such a terribly isolated place, but here to LA. <laughs> Other questions? Yes, here in the center. Hi, uh, I wonder if you could um, speak to one of the most. Uh, the, the exclusion from your film of one of the most uh, sort of evocative and mysterious moments in the film, which is when uh, Jack Nicholson comes across the two men, uh, one in the bear costume and the other in the tuxedo, uh, sort of in mid-sex act. And I'm curious, did your, did your folks speak about that, or was there a decision consciously to not discuss that? I mean, I... Yeah, um, we didn't avoid it you know, in particular, and certainly it's a scene that lots of people talk about. In the interviews that we did, nobody had a ton to say. I fished a little, you know. Um, arguably, it's got something to do with, you know, when Jay Widener is talking about sort of, you know, the sexual phantoms inside of the film, or even he goes on in his other work on his own DVDs or on his website to talk more about the Cold War era that um, may be being referred to in the movie, and that the bear is a reference to Soviet Russia. Because the Cold War driving the, the moon, 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 you know, the, the U.S. space program. Um, you know, I would have loved to have spent more, spent more time with those two fellows. Um, certainly, they made, there was reference to them in that in an article about the film that the New York Times wrote, New York Times wrote, which carried one of many, many people's favorite corrections of all time. That said, that a man in a tuxedo seen with a fellow in a bear suit is not, in fact, wearing a top hat. We apologize for the mistake. <laughs> Other questions? Uh, yes, here in the front. Just wait for the microphone, please. I was wondering if you would be able to dedicate all, you know, as much time for another fascinating film of him, 
You, there are several scenes from Eyes Wide Shut shown mm -hmm. in room 237, but I want to let the director and producer speak. Well, um, if we were to do a follow-up film, I think that would have to be the one. We've done work, on, if it were to be on Kubrick, when we've looked around on the internet, I mean, we've never found even more writing than on The Shining, on any film, but of Kubrick's films, the eyes wide shut is a real comer. I mean, there's just, as we're speaking, someone is writing a new treatise about this right now, um, because there is just emerging on the internet uh, like an explosion, right? And certainly the critical response, you know, when I was checked on is was reminiscent of what happened to the shut, that when it first came out, neither was sort of universally acclaimed, but as time goes by, they're kind of you know, rising and pressure. Um, it's also great that in the last DVD release we were able to see, you know, the uncensored version without those chat figures that had been superimposed for the American audience. Um, um, I don't think, but said, I think this project is going to be another similar um, symbolic analysis of the Got to take a deep breath. Think about something else for a little. Um, I also wanted to ask all of your experts are so eloquent and fascinating to listen to, but I think it's John Fell Ryan at the very end who says that his life has become the shining, which is particularly resonant. While making this and revisiting the film, I don't know how many times did it feel that you yourself had sort of fallen down this rabbit hole that you could never ever get out of the Overlook Hotel. Oh, well, absolutely. You know, there's something, you know, there's a hundred reasons why The Shining was the best film, you know, for us to tackle in this thing. Not least of which it's about small people trapped someplace and trapped in a grand, you know, beautiful kind of, kind of place and shining is a grand, beautiful place. And you've got a small people, ourselves, very much included, inside of it. I think I've already talked a little bit about, you know, how long I've spent on the keyboard trying not to be too much of a jerk. You know, family came, I needed a little bit of attention <laughs> while I was in the midst of it. Um, um, so for sure. But I think if in that scenario, Rodney is 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 Jack, type playup writer. I'm Lloyd, pouring pouring drinks. Telling, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have time for one last question. Okay, I guess it goes to you. Well, um, there's so much amazing amount of uh, come things put together here that I wanted you to talk a little bit about. How much it must have made you crazy to figure out how you were going to order this, how you were going to structure it, and uh, that in itself is another rabbit hole you must have fallen down just figuring out how, when to inject an image and what image, and and then the rights issues, which I'm sure is a whole other matter. But I'd love to hear about how you put figured out how to map it. 
Yeah, well, you know, I went through a couple of stages. You know, the first process, you know, after logging all the interviews and things, was, you know, I kind of sort of a radio version of different sequences. And like with each person, there would be, you know, a dozen or so five or six minute self-contained units. You know, and I would give them a name. And we would, you know, put them in a folder and think about them. And then, you know, begin the search for imagery. So before this was a feature, this was, you know, 30 shorts. And then, you know, the time came to stitch them together, and um, we had this great, we, we had this great wall, you know, with a different colored post-it note. We had, like, five different colored post-it notes representing the five, you know, different um, people that we talked to in the film, and would have, like, a one-word title for what each of their segments were. And we'd try to find associations between them, and it would always be kind of uncanny the way one would sort of blur into the next. Um, so, you know, that process, so the, the braiding together, you know, was, was, was certainly a gigantic process. Um, and a lot of the connections were maybe, you know, halfway subjective, not exactly, you know, because it, it, it certainly, at one point we had, we're looking at different structural ideas, like, do we start at the beginning of the movie, go to the end of the movie, do we do each of the five people in a row, but if we did that, we wouldn't be able to get them to overlap inside me or to comment on each other in interesting ways. Like there's the moment when Jeffrey Cox starts to use John Tell Ryan's dissolve idea to talk about the suitcases turning into the people the same way that the ladder turns into the exterior of the hotel. Um, and, and finding the imagery to go on top. But, you know, again, it was another situation where, you know, the, the, the coincidences would pile up upon themselves. Like there's a, a moment when Bill Blakemore calls Stanley Kubrick like a gigantic mega brain for the planet. I'm like, well, I guess I'll, find, I'll try to find a giant brain. <laughs> and, you know, I looked through the, the, the 50s horror film, The Brain from Planet Our House, um, and I found a good shot of a brain, and then when I let it play a little bit longer, I was just astonished to notice a moment when the brain was looking at an axe. <laughs> Which couldn't have been a more perfect image if I had sat down, you know, and sketched it out myself. Some of the images came a little harder, like the reveal of the Indians uh, on the on the uh, on the bluff was something we were like, oh, we could just find that somewhere, and it took a lot more looking than we thought. But it's interesting because it seemed like such an iconic moment of Indians coming up over the top of the hill. Like that must be. A recurring image in 500 westerns, but to get it exactly right was not was, was, was not super easy. Insane amount of time spent on that one. Um, so it kind of uh, I guess the short answer is it evolved <laughs> as we went through. Certainly, certainly the film you know that we started with you know was not the film that we ended up making. Um, I don't know if that answers the question or. Dances around one digression after another. No, it answered it quite beautifully. Well, thank you both, Rodney Asher, Tim Kirk, for being here with us via Skype. I'll see you there next week. I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, yes, same here. Thanks again. Thank you guys. Thanks, everyone. Thank you all.